The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committed ad- committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God, and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. I said, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me, my father, and would not turn from following me. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God. And we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. This is the word of the Lord. We right in the middle of a series in the prophet of Jeremiah in the Old Testament in my church Bible. It's page 629. It's going to be a great, great help to me if you can turn to that passage and have it open in front of you. Just to mention that... uh, Do check your cell phone, see that it's on silent, otherwise you're going to be embarrassed. And if you do have a small baby or child with you, we do have a cry room here on 
my left-hand side, your right-hand side. On the verandas, we also have speakers, so you can slip out if your baby or child gives you any difficulty. That'll be a great help to all of us. Jeremiah chapter 3. This morning, we're looking at Jeremiah 3. Next week, God willing, Jeremiah chapter 4. So uh, do read that before next Sunday. It's a great help if you can read the chapter before you come and uh, get some handle on what God is saying through his word uh, even before you come. So next Sunday, Jeremiah chapter 4, but this morning, Jeremiah chapter 3 that Leah read to us earlier on. Well, let me pray and ask God to help us to understand and apply his word. Let's pray. Father, your word says that the Bible is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, for all of us, this past week, in one way or the other, we have walked in the shadows, perhaps the darkness. And so we do pray that your Holy Spirit, who is the only one who can penetrate our hearts, will do so and will apply your word and draw us to yourself and bring us into the light, the true light, And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. I googled the phrase love quotations, and as you can imagine, there are millions of love quotations on Google. Most of them, of course, are too sentimental for me. Uh, Here's one. When I listen to my heart, it whispers your name. Uh, Well... Perhaps your wife tells you that you snore. Um, Here's another one. Love is a single soul in two bodies. Uh, Perhaps you've been told that your body's getting fat. So, uh, yeah, here's one I've always loved. It's a country western uh, quote um, before LGBT, which says that my best friend ran off with my wife and I miss him so much. Jeremiah chapter 3 is actually a love story, but it's a tragic love story. It's a sad love story. And here are some more appropriate quotes, I think, Um, all in the minor key. You know you really love someone when you can't hate them for breaking your heart. Or you hurt my feelings, you broke my heart, you made me cry, you left me alone, and yet I wonder why I still love you. They say, just get over him. Yeah, you know, it's really easy to get over someone you still love. I think Jeremiah puts it best. Chapter 3, verse 12. Return faithless Israel. I will not look look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever, declares the Lord. That's the key to the passage. It comes out, verse 22, Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. People often say that the Old Testament is about God's judgment and the New Testament is about God's love. Well, they're totally wrong, and they've obviously never read Jeremiah. Jeremiah is actually called the weeping prophet, and he represents a weeping God who's calling and he's yearning for his bride to stop running after other lovers and return. Let me give you some background. Uh, If you missed the last two weeks, you can go onto the website 
Uh, We looked at Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah 2 this week, Jeremiah 3. Let me read again from verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the hall? And I thought after she had done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her warden whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this her treacherous sister did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Now, some background. 2000 BC, let me give you some markers, some historical markers that will help you to understand the, the historical story narrative of the Old Testament. 2000 BC, God called Abraham, our father in the faith. And God said to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God established his covenant with Abraham. And he called Abraham and his people Israel, his covenant people. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of the sons was Joseph. Joseph went into Egypt. The, the, the Israelites spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. God sent Moses, 1,500 B.C. So there, there's another marker. Abraham, 2,000. Moses, 1,500 B.C. God sends Moses to rescue his people, his covenant people, from slavery. You have the Exodus. They go through the wilderness. They come to the promised land. The high point of Israel, politically, economically, was 1,000 B.C., during the reign of King David, King Solomon. But now by 600-500 B.C., which is where we are with the prophet Jeremiah, the nation Israel has deserted their God, their groom, their husband. And they have run after other gods, other, other lovers, other, other idols, instead of worshipping the God who had rescued them and saved them. So at this point in time, Israel... North was called, so it's a little bit complicated, all of it is called Israel, but the north was called Israel as well. The south was called Judah. And uh, at this point, uh, Israel had already been taken into exile by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And the south called Judah were not yet in exile, but Jeremiah compares the two, which is what we've just read, He compares the two, and by so doing, he's warning Judah not to go down the same route. Throughout these chapters, Jeremiah uses the imagery, the metaphor of marriage. God is the husband, the groom. Israel and Judah is the bride. And the tragedy of these chapters is that the bride has has run after other idols, other lovers, And so Jeremiah, the prophet of God, is God's mouthpiece, calling God's bride back to himself. So that's the imagery, that's the context in which we find these verses. Israel has deserted her first love. Israel has gone after other gods, the gods of the Canaanites. And so God, who is a Merciful God, God who is a yearning, heartbroken, 
groom is calling his bride back to himself. And you, 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 you sense the, the, the pathos, the, the yearning, the, the agony, the pain of God the husband whose bride has deserted him and abandoned him. And though he still loves her, she's run after other lovers. Just uh, one quick comment to help us um, not get the terminology and language incorrect. The words prostitute, prostitution are used here, and um, uh, Jeremiah uses it deliberately to shock. He's trying to shock them out of their complacency, out of their idolatry, out of their spiritual adultery. But in our context, especially within the last couple of years, uh, prostitutes are are pretty much everyone, prostitutes, all prostitutes, are victims. They're victims of human trafficking. Uh, In fact, our sister church in Hillbrow has a a wonderful ministry to street women. And uh, sometimes I've been there, I've been involved, and all of those, all, all of them, they are not there willingly, voluntarily, of course not. They are trapped by, by debt or by drugs or by pimps. Um, the idea that we have here that Jeremiah is talking about is these women that he's talking about are willing. They, they game. Um, these, are, these are blessees. You all know blesses and blessees, yes? These are blessees. They know what they want and they know how to get it. But these blessees are married. That's the tragedy. Years back when I was studying at uh, UCT, there were guys at the res, like normal students, who were playing the field. But, uh, but make no mistake, there were plenty of girls who were also very happily playing the field. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. He's not talking about human trafficking here. He's talking about blessees, and they married Israel and Judah is married to her, to her groom, God. But they've become blessees. They're playing the field. They're playing the game. Baal worship, last comment. Baal worship. So what was happening was that Israel, God's covenant people, he had called them, he had rescued them, he had saved them through the exodus. The exodus is a picture of salvation of the gospel. God rescuing his people from spiritual slavery. Despite that, they have sought after other gods, after other lovers. And when they moved into Canaan, they started worshipping the Canaanite gods. And one of the key gods in the ancient Middle East was Baal and his, uh, his wife, Asherah. And uh, Baal was a fertility god. He was the god of water, of rain, of, uh, of lightning, of thunder, of the elements um, and one of the ways in which they worship God, which is, which is why Jeremiah is even using this terminology, is that um, Baal was the god of fertility. He would make the crops grow. So you would worship Baal and you would have produce, you would have good crops, you'd have, you'd have plenty of little uh, uh, um, cows and sheep and goats and chickens, and, and the woman would be fertile. So you, you, would be, you would worship Baal so that there would be fertility in the clan, in the tribe, in the family. And one of the ways in which they worship God, uh, worship Baal, 
was for a man to have sex with the temple priestess, with a temple prostitute. It was called sympathetic magic. That is that they believed they could influence the god Baal to bring fertility to the clan by performing the behavior they wished Baal to follow. That's why Jeremiah, that's what he means when he says verse 6. So you understand yet, Israel went up on every high hill and under every green tree and played the whore. That's what was happening. Verse 9, she polluted the land, committed adultery with stone and tree. Verse 23 talks about orgies on the mountains. So there we have some context. There we have some background. Three principles that we're going to have a look at. The truth about idols, the truth about repentance, and the truth about God. So let's dig in straight away. The First of all, the truth about idols. Now, the, the theme of idolatry pervades the chapter, and it comes out in different ways. Notice verse 13, uh, Baal and the other idols are called foreigners. Um, so this is not xenophobia, this is idolatry. Um, for, uh, to have, have a look, chapter 3, verse 13. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors amongst foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Verse 20, notice that idolatry here is called treachery, which it is when you married and you find another lover. Verse 20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Verse 23, idolatry is called hills or orgies. Now you remember from last week I quoted John Calvin, and John Calvin quite rightly and quite astute, very astutely said that our hearts are idol factories. And that was true of the Israelites. They were seeking after other gods, after other idols. So the question is why? Why do our hearts manipulate? Why do they manufacture idols? How did we get to this? So let me take a quick detour. Romans chapter 1. Keep your place in Jeremiah 3. Romans chapter 1. Paul helps us to understand why our hearts become idol factories. Why did Israel abandon the God of creation, the God who rescued her, the God who saved her. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul tells us, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here actually is the root cause of idolatry, the root cause of sin. Though every human being knows that there's a God, Every human being knows that there's a God. They may deny it. They may call themselves atheists or agnostics. But deep down, everybody knows that there's a greater infinite being. There's a creator. There's a God. We instinctively know that. The problem is we don't want him to be God, God of our lives. We don't want to honor him, meaning we don't want to submit to his authority. That's the heart of sin. We don't want God to be God. We don't want someone else telling me what to do, how to live, how to think, how to behave. How extraordinary. The creature doesn't want the creator to be God. The creature doesn't want God to be central in his life. Now, why is that? Because I want to be central. I want to call the shots. 
You see, the most common form of idolatry is actually me. I want to be at the heart of the story. I want to do as I like. I don't want anybody else telling me what to do. I don't want some preacher at the church telling me what to do. I don't want some old book written so many years ago telling me what to do. No, I'll make up my own mind. I'll make up my own rules. I'll make up my own worldview. I'll make my own happiness. That's what verse 21 is saying. We kind of have a God complex. We think we're God. We don't want anyone else to be God. I think we sometimes think of our lives as a story. And if you're religious, God is one of the characters. And uh, you turn to him when you need him. You turn to him when you're in trouble. You, you think he'll be grateful when you come to church and give him some money. Um, he's a lovely character in your story. He may even get an Oscar as a supporting actor. The problem is, it's my story. I'm the main actor. I'm the producer. I'm the director. My name is in the lights. My dear friend, that's idolatry, isn't it? Pure and simple. And Paul says, verse 21, how extraordinary, how foolish, how futile. It's not our story, it's God's story. I love that, that song where I'm a nobody. Because we want everybody to recognize Jesus. Isn't that right? The problem with idolatry is I'm the somebody. You know how some people, so we all find them painful, they're a legend in their own minds. Don't you know those people? At dinner parties, prize, they just talk about themselves. They're a legend in their own minds. In some ways, we're all like that. Most of us just hide it well. That's idolatry. 21, verse 21 is the first step. The second step is verse 22 in Romans. Taking a bit of a detour here. Verse 22, claiming to be wise. They claim to be very wise. They become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So having rejected the true God, because we made in the image of God, because we all have a sense of spirituality, because we all know that there's an infinite being, because we don't want God to be God in our lives, because we have a God-shaped vacuum, what do we do? We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. So we saw that last week. We all have this God-shaped vacuum. We try and fill it with all kinds of stuff. We try and stuff it with all these things, but they don't fit, and they don't last. We make idols to fill that God-shaped vacuum. So it really doesn't matter what you call yourself. You may call yourself an atheist or agnostic or skeptic. You have a sixth sense. You won't admit it. We all have a sense of spirituality, a sense of eternity. We all know that there's an infinite being. But because we don't want the God of the Bible to have authority of our lives, we make something an idol to take its place. You remember what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, when we, come, when we cease to worship God, we do, not worship we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. Isn't that right? Everyone has a God. Everyone has an idol. Which is precisely why the human heart of the Israelites 
and the Afrikaners and the Zulus and the English become idle factories, continually trying to fill this God-shaped vacuum. Remember those haunting words of C.S. Lewis, which is really idolatry. Beware of the sweet poison of the false infinite. It's a little bit like sugar. I couldn't say this if I had a lot of farmers farming sugar, but it's a poison, isn't it? But it's sweet. It's a poison because you think it will satisfy and it doesn't. It's a false infinite. It kills from the inside out. Perhaps Paul had Jeremiah in mind when he said in Romans 1 verse 25, he exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. It's ultimately a lie. It's a delusion. Turn back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 23. It's a lie, it's a delusion, it doesn't satisfy. Your fertility God is not going to give you crops and produce and children and lambs. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Tim Keller said in his book, Counterfeit Gods, it's a great book, Counterfeit Gods, he said, we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are expect, we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Your God may be romance. Your God may be motherhood. Your God may be marriage or the white wedding. Your God may be that promotion. Your God may be uh, getting into the first team or getting that bonus. Those are not wrong things. Of course they're not wrong things. Those are good things. Those are the things that become our gods. Let me give you a real-life example. Young man, never had a proper girlfriend, a couple of dates here and there, longed to have a girlfriend. Someone to love and someone who would love him. Uh, he thought that romantic love would satisfy the yearning of his soul. Anything wrong with romantic love? Of course not. Finally, he found a girl. They became lovers. But now he's going through the trauma of having been jilted, dropped. This is what he says, I quote. I thought that once I found the right person to love, everything else would fall into place. And for a while it did. I thought love had finally conquered my yearning and also my lifelong problems with anger and distrust. But it hadn't. It was still there. So I started clinging more, demanding more. I banked all my need for love in her and told her so. She said she couldn't bear the weight of it. I longed for her to solve all my problems, meet all my needs. I wanted her to give ultimate meaning to my life so that I wouldn't be left alone. She told me no one could sustain the pressure of being a God for someone else. So I'm alone again, wondering why my immense wish to be loved can't be gratified. End of quote. I say this at weddings, and it's really not PC. <laughs> I say that if you think your spouse will satisfy all your longings and needs and yearnings, you are going to be bitterly disappointed. I'm very sorry about that. 
Because no human being can do that. Only God can. Well, there we have the truth about idols. Let's have a look at the truth about repentance. Key word in this chapter is turn. And it's used in different ways. Turn back, turn around, come home. Let me show you a couple of times. It's the key word. Chapter 3, verse 1. You played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 7. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. Verse 12. You have this yearning, this pleading, this broken heart, this weeping prophet of a weeping God, a weeping groom. Return, faithless Israel. Return, O faithless children. Verse 14. Verse 22. Return, O faithless sons. Come back to me. Come back home. It's a, it's a haunting appeal based upon the longing of God's heart to be reconciled with his people. So in a sense, the book of Jeremiah is for us. It's more for us as, as believers, as church people, than non-church people. God is saying to his people, the one he has rescued and saved, and who he has saved from, from, from slavery and death, he says, return. Come home. We often don't understand how serious our rejection of God is. So when we, when we talk about sin, when we talk about depravity, he talks about abomination here. We think of terrible things and horrible things that people have done who are in prison. That's not what he's talking about here. No, no, he's, he's talking about a heart that, is, that has lost its first love. Some of you know this, the heartbreak of divorce. That's why we have divorce care in this church. And we love and we care for people who have been separated and divorced because you know the agony, you know the brokenness, you know the emptiness, you know the sense of worthlessness. And in a sense, that's a picture of God. It's almost... It's almost it's almost impossible to understand that of God, the sovereign God of all creation, that he should have a broken heart when the children he has rescued by his blood are frivolous with that gift. They've just discarded it. He's divorced. Ever thought about God as a divorcee? His heart is broken. The problem is they return, but it's in pretense. The problem is, notice verse 4, they circumcise themselves, but they don't circumcise their hearts. You get it? You can be at church. You can come to church. You can go through the motions, but your heart is not here. What an extraordinary concept. Notice verse 12c. 
Notice verse 12. Let me read. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors amongst foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. What an extraordinary concept. Think of the many times. This is, this is, this is pure grace. This is amazing grace. To God's people, Christians, you and me, who have started walking in the shadows, who have started loving the darkness, and he's calling us back. He's saying, I will not be angry forever. Think of the many times you and I have turned away from God in our hearts, and we followed our own stubborn will. No one knows that. You know that. God knows that. You have said, no, 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 I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Think of the many times you've become anxious, you've despaired, not trusting God's word, God's promises, God's sovereignty. Think about it this week. How many times haven't we done that? God has told us, I'm sovereign, I'm king, I'm Lord. I know the beginning from the end. And yet I distrust his word. I lose faith, I despair. Isn't that a slap in his faith? face? Think of the many times you and I have consciously hardened our hearts against God. You know that hymn that, we, that I often quote, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's more than this. It's not prone, it's proactive. Aren't there times, haven't, haven't there been times this week, my dear friends, when you and I haven't proactively, deliberately, defiantly, in action, in word, or in thought, defied God? And yet God in his love still calls you back and says, return, 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 faithless Israel. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. We often don't understand the grievous nature of our independence against God. So as I said earlier on, we think of great sins as uh, committed by people who are in prison, uh, lying and stealing and murdering and those kinds of things. Of course those are great sins, but the greatest thing, sin is when we are nice, respectable people, middle-class people, but we live as if there's no God. We live as if we are God. That is the greatest abomination. That is what grieves God's heart that he's created us, he's given us life, he's given us gifts, he's given us opportunities, he's given you a body, he's given you a mind, he's given you breath itself, and yet you will not thank him. We often think that we are repenting. Sometimes when I share the gospel, and uh, being a pastor, I probably have more opportunities than you have. People expect me to be religious, to talk about God and to pray. Often at functions, there's a function, there's a meal, so, so they're going to say grace. So they say, well, Martin's here, he's the professional, let him say grace. You know how it is? In fact, in fact we had a family function years and years ago, and um, it was a Christmas or some function, and my dad was going to pray, and my brother said to my dad, no, dad, Ask Martin, you don't buy a dog and bark yourself. Uh, that's what my brother thinks of my profession. So sometimes when I share the gospel and I talk about God, I talk about sin, 
I know the person has got no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about sin when they say, you know, I'm only human. I'm not perfect. I know that. I make mistakes. That is not what Jeremiah is talking about. That is not repentance. Repentance is when I recognize my self-made idol, which may be myself, my rights, my comfort, my interests, my independence, my autonomy. That is God's, that before God, that's an abomination. And when I realize that, Repentance is when, like David, Psalm 51 verse 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned. It's not a mistake. Not that I'm just human. Not just, oh yes, I'm not perfect. No, no, no. David says, against you I have sinned. I'm depraved by nature from birth. And unless you have mercy on me, I am lost. Luke 18, the tax collector standing far off. He doesn't even look up to God. He's so embarrassed. He's so ashamed. He's so, he's so, he's so, he's so uh, riven by his, by his guilt. Oh God, oh God, have mercy on me. That's repentance. There are times when I have fallen again, some old sin, old pride, old greed. At my stage of life, all the sins are old. What do I say? Oh, God. Oh, God, have mercy on me. I love Psalm 51. I can recite it to you. I love Luke 18. Oh, God, have mercy on me. Notice just quickly two aspects of repentance. The one we've already talked about, chapter 4, verse 1. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. To me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. Now, there are two aspects. The one is a spiritual aspect to repentance. It's when you actually, like the tax collector, realize, oh God, if you don't have mercy on me, I am sunk, I am damned. It's ruthless. It's not just a mistake. But notice it's also practical, verse 2. It's ethical. It's visible. You'll see repentance. There's a change of behavior. It has to do with truth and justice and righteousness. Someone said you need to purge your behavior of lies, injustice, oppression. That's true repentance. There's a change of behavior. So instead of walking this way, you're turning around and you're walking that way. It is not good enough, my dear friends, just to say prayers in the morning with the staff and then spend the rest of the day in corruption. That is not repentance. It will change your lifestyle. Lastly, the truth about God. Well, we've touched on this. Verse 12, return faithless Israel. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge 
your guilt, that you have rebelled against the Lord your God. There's a tension here, and I won't go into it, between the love of God and the anger of God, the love of God and the wrath of God. And the tension is resolved, strangely enough, through verse 15 to 18. So when I first read that, when I started my work on this passage, I thought, my goodness me, what on earth is this section doing here? But it's actually a resolution to the love of God and the wrath of God, and actually it's about Jesus. So let me read that. Here's Here's the resolution to our guilt, to our shame. Here's a resolution between the tension between God's love and God's wrath. It's Christ, it's Jesus, the true shepherd, and I will give you. So, so Jeremiah looks ahead, he's a prophet, he looks ahead. One day God will resolve this idolatry. God will resolve the tension between his love and his wrath by sending a shepherd, the true shepherd. I will give you shepherds after my own heart whom will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of, 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 of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Well, of course not. The ark of God represented the presence of God. It symbolized God's presence. We no longer need the ark. Why? Because the great shepherd is here. Jesus is here. Here's the final resolution. Here's the final answer to our idolatry. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. When you read John 14, 15, 16, the throne of Jesus is the cross. And the cross was lifted up in Jerusalem. The only answer, my dear friends, to the deviant nature of our hearts and minds is the cross, is Christ, the true shepherd, the true ark, the true temple, the true tabernacle, the true sacrifice, the true priest is Jesus. And on the cross, the wrath of God is poured out on the Son of God, the true shepherd, the perfect shepherd. He quenches the wrath of God, though he doesn't deserve the wrath of God. And at the same time, as the Son of God quenches God's wrath, God pours his love out upon people like you and me to rescue us from our futile, foolish ways, to forgive us, to cleanse us. And I will no longer be angry with you. Why? Because the anger of God was spent on the true shepherd. At the cross meets the love of God and the wrath of God in Jesus. We did the sinning and he did the dying. He took the wrath and we received the love. Let me close. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how long it's been. Doesn't matter how deep it is. Come home. Today. Come home. Stop messing around. 
Don't say, no, 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 let me first get my life in shape, then I'll come back to God. I, I can't go to God like this. Look at me. No, no, no. Come as you are. Come. And God says, I will be angry no longer when you come home, when you kneel at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments in silence as we reflect on God's word. You tell God where you are right now. Father, we have just heard your voice as we read your word. And Lord, there's not a single person in this room who hasn't wandered in their minds from loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Father, we have all run after idols They seem so sweet, and yet they poison. We've run off to things that we think will satisfy our need for security, for safety, for happiness. Forgive us, Lord. Convict us of our idolatry. Lord, Get us out of those shadows. We know where they lead. Get us back to yourself. Help us to call on you just as David did. Against you, you only have I sinned. Help us to call like the tax collector, Oh God, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Father, we thank you so, so much that when we do that, with all the rubbish and all the garbage and all the mixed motives and all the false idols, when we turn away from those and turn to you and call on you for mercy, that you hear and you answer. So Lord, will you do that today in our hearts? So, Father, go with us into this week. Help us to serve you and live for you. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.